Well, we're a month removed from the holidays, and I'm sure you enjoyed the time that you spent with your family. But family get-togethers can be stressful. Ask any police officer, and he or she will tell you that family fights become more frequent around the holidays. Researchers say that 75% of us have at least one family member that annoys us. And when forced to interact with that person, it doesn't always go so well. Arguments break out, disagreements occur, even fights erupt. I read of a recent incident in Point Marion, Pennsylvania. According to his mother, George is usually an easygoing guy. But when his daughter-in-law, who was cooking for him that night, served baked chicken instead of fried chicken, it set George off. He thought the chicken was too dry. Apparently, he verbalized his comments. The family dinner turned violent when the daughter-in-law picked up a chair and threw it at George. The fight spilled out onto the sidewalk in front of the house where the neighbors and the police finally got involved. Well, welcome to the dinners hosted by the church at Corinth. When the Corinthian Christians came together to eat and to share a meal, the results weren't much better. Rather than a celebration, rather than a happy convocation, their church-wide potlucks had become a time of tension and greed and quarreling and division. And this is what Paul addresses in the second half of 1 Corinthians 11. His goal is to fix their family feast. Verse 17 begins. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. (laughs) Paul had been addressing troubles in the church at Corinth, and beginning in chapter 11, he begins to discuss problems involving their public assembly. Their gatherings were doing more harm than good. What an awful diagnosis for a church. In essence, he's saying, hey, it would be better if you folks just closed the door and disbanded. At their get-togethers, they needed to get it together. Paul gets specific with them. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, he had spoken of church divisions earlier in his letter. Chapter 1 described how church members had camped out around their favorite teacher. Some said, I am of Paul. Others said, I am of Apollos. They had rallied around a style and an emphasis. But here, these divisions were more fundamental. There were deep social fissures in this fellowship. And part of this stemmed from the world in which they lived. We think of America today as a class-conscious society. We talk of one percenters and the middle class and then the people who live below the poverty line. Well, the ancient world saw an even greater gap between the haves and the have-nots. In fact, the early Christians ran ran society's social gamut. You remember Paul wrote to the Philippians of believers who lived in Caesar's own household. While we also know of a large segment of the church that came from the ranks of the slaves. I'm sure there were merchants and government officials in the Corinthian church with great wealth, as well as beggars who lived 
daily lives from hand to mouth. These socioeconomic divisions created a great gulf. And sadly, these factions were visible even in the church. Hey, if rich folk had the love of God, they'd want to give to the poor. And if the poor folk had the love of God, they wouldn't envy the rich. Yet in Corinth, the rich were selfish and the poor were angry, and it soured their gatherings. Paul says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now here Paul adds an interesting note. To a degree, he expected factions. You know, often I talk to well-meaning Christians who bemoan the fact that there's not just one church in every city. Why do Christians have to divide under this brand and that brand? They see denominations as a really big negative. But notice Paul says there must be factions. In a sense, it's inevitable. The Lord allows what Paul calls factions in the church so that we can learn to differentiate between the good and the bad, or better yet, the good and the best. You see, the church is a big tent, the body of Christ made up of many parts. This is essential because people in general come in different stripes and types, and thus God allows for great latitude in how churches develop and in what they emphasize. But this doesn't mean that all churches are created equal. Some excel over others. And it's because there are many that the best become evident. As you could say, the cream rises to the top. And this benefits all churches if every church is willing to learn from others. In essence, Paul is saying, if every town only had one church and that one church went astray, it would be the death knell of the church in that particular town. You know, it's the flexibility to have and to start new groups that has allowed Orthodox Christianity to survive through the ages. Corrections get made. New movements are born. Because Christianity is not one large monolithic entity, the church has remained self-correcting, or better stated, spirit-correcting through the ages. Remember, the last time there was only one church in the world, it was Roman Catholic. Just be thankful that God didn't insist on one church. This allowed the reformers to split from the Roman church and recapture true Christianity. God has worked spiritual revival throughout history. He rescues the church by starting new churches. When a church grows corrupt, God starts a fresh work. And I'm sure there was at least one faction in Corinth that God could have used to start over if need be. But before he did, he wanted to try and bring all the factions back together. It would be a stronger witness if this church rallied together and started showing the proper love for one another. And the first step in doing so was to fix the feast. He addresses how bad the situation was in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. This is terrible. If what they were doing wasn't so diabolical, it would be comical. Believers were pushing each other aside to get 
to the front of the food line. They were cutting in order. They were eating and even drinking too much. The Corinthians could have called themselves the drunk church. They crashed communion, drunk as a skunk. You know, there's actually more to the story. In the early church, believers, both rich and poor, gathered the first day of the week for a church-wide potluck. Sunday was still a work day in the pagan world, so they met in the evening after business hours. They called their feast the agape feast, or the love feast. Agape is the Greek word for God's love. The same love that the Corinthian Christians supposedly shared with each other. Yet, the Corinthians were guilty of what you could call some sloppy agape. This wasn't what God desired. There wasn't a lot of love being shown at their feast. You see, the agape feast was a communal meal followed by a communion service. But the way the Corinthians were behaving at their meal betrayed the idea of communion. After all the greed and the selfishness and the rudeness, how could they then call it the Lord's Supper? Their supper, maybe. A selfish supper, for sure. But if you had dusted it for fingerprints, the Lord's wouldn't have been anywhere near it. There was nothing loving about their feast. When the church members met, they fought for first dibs on the food. They drank too much wine. It was a free-for-all. Imagine the rich Christians assigning their slaves extra chores so they could get to the feast first. They rigged the agape feast so that they could eat what they wanted with whom they wanted. The lower class Christians got the leftover casserole and conversation. And all this was appalling to Paul. The feast in the pagan temples to the idols of Bacchus and Aphrodite usually included drinking to excess and gorging oneself with food. In a sense, all these new Christians had done was simply carry over their pagan practices into church life. And Paul scolds them. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Hey, you could pig out and get sauced on, on your own. You didn't need to come to church. If all they wanted to do was just hang out with their friends and enjoy some barbecue, they should have just stayed home. You see, the Christians at Corinth needed to realize that the church's get-togethers were far more than a meal. When the church sponsored a potluck, it was an opportunity to show their community their love and their caring for one another. In Christ, everyone had been elevated to the same status. Their meals were a showcase to their neighbors that a social revolution had begun in Christ Jesus. If they wanted the world to see the rich get richer and the poor get poor, they could have just pointed them to any other aspect of pagan life in ancient culture. But the church had a unique mission. The church is an oasis in the desert where everyone gets treated with the same compassion and love and care, regardless of their social standing or their economic ability. You know, I'll be honest, this is one of the things that bugs me a bit about our get-togethers. It's true of our wonderful Sundays, our Wednesday night meals, even some of our other fellowships. You know, on Wednesday nights, if we have pulled pork and banana pudding and charge $3 a plate, we end up with a mob. 
But if it's Little Caesars for $3 a slice, you'd think somebody would call in a bomb scare. Apparently, it's the menu and the cost that are determining factors for some people whether they come or not. And my question to you is, where's your vision? Where's your understanding of the bigger picture? When the church gathers, it should never be about food, but the fellowship. The food is just secondary. It's the excuse for which we gather. We're coming and we're paying to break bread together, to express our love for one another, to enhance our unity, even to be encouraged by each other, not just feed our face or our family. Can we call what we do a love feast? Or is it just a cookout or a potluck? Remember, the Corinthians were doing more harm than good when they gathered. They were making a mockery of worship. Their fellowship with each other was a farce. Their agape feast was a sham. And Paul needs to fix their family feast. In fact, that's what he does next. Verse 23 is what every pastor should be able to say whenever he stands up to preach. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Hey, what I give to the people on Sunday morning should be what I get from God. A pastor who just rants and spouts off his own opinions and delves into his own conjectures isn't worth his space in the parking lot, let alone the free bagel he gets in the brook on Sunday morning. He's a discredit to his uniform. Hey, before I enter this pulpit, I need to be on my face before the Lord. I need to seek His Word for the morning so that I can say, what I receive from Him, I deliver to you. And here's what Paul delivers. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the first apostles had been there personally. They'd heard Jesus utter these words with their own ears. Then they had recorded them in the Scriptures. Paul was not a part of that first group. He had heard about the night later, either by reading the Gospels or by taking, talking to a particular apostle who had been there, or maybe Jesus gave Paul a personal revelation of what was said. How it was delivered, we don't know, but that it came directly from Jesus, Paul had no doubts. And now he wants the Corinthians to eavesdrop in on those sacred words. And Paul provides us the setting for that night on the same night in which he was betrayed. That speaks volumes. On the night he was betrayed, while the wounds were still fresh, while his heart was still heavy, this is what he said. And that was just the beginning, of course, of the events that transpired that night. Before the night was done, he would be bruised and beaten. The Roman executioners would pluck out his beard and crown him with thorns and ready his body for a crucifixion. And not only was Jesus faced with the dawning task of bearing the sins of the world, he had to go there knowing that his friends had betrayed him and had forsaken him. It was a sober somber, serious night to say the least. How in the world could the Corinthians have managed to turn it into a sloshy, gluttonous, boozy brawl 
Paul could never imagine. Once there was a little boy, he was taking part in his first communion. And as he looked down at the tiny little wafer in one hand and the little bitty cup in the other hand, he asked his dad to explain what it all meant. Dad whispered, son, this was Jesus' last supper. The little guy got puzzled. He said, they sure didn't give him much, did they? Actually, what we take as the bread and the cup was really just a small portion of a larger feast. Jews would gather on this night, the night of the Passover, to remember their salvation from Egypt. Unleavened bread spoke of their faith. Their forefathers left Egypt before the bread had time to rise. And the cup spoke of their pardon. The blood of the sacrificed lamb was spread on the headers and the doorposts of every Hebrew entryway so that when the death angel saw the blood, he passed over the house. Today, Jesus is our Passover. When His blood is applied to our hearts, God's judgment passes over us. At His last supper, Jesus took these ancient symbols and He assigned them new meaning. What for centuries had spoken of the body and blood of a sacrificed lamb now represented His body and His blood sacrificed for us. And notice carefully what Jesus recounts of that night what Paul recounts of what Jesus said. Notice his, notice his words carefully, or you might just miss something wonderful. Jesus knew what he was about to endure when he took bread and he had given thanks. Did you hear that? He knew the serious suffering that awaited him. And what did he do? He gave thanks. Jesus was thankful for the cross. Why? He knew it meant our salvation. This is the point of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. For the joy that was set before Him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy of seeing you forgiven and changed and His, Jesus endured. And imagine being there. That night in the upper room, watching the Lord's own fingers break the bread as easily and as deliberately as the Romans would tear his body the next day. In the upper room, the bread was passed from person to person, each disciple pulling off a piece. It all spoke of their collaboration in the crime. Truth is, we're all guilty of breaking his body. He died for each of us. Even we this morning, when we hold a little bit later in our service the shredded bread in our hands, let it be red-handed proof that none of us are innocent either. We're all guilty of him breaking the bread, of the breaking of his body. And hear the words that fell from Jesus' lips. Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Over the years, the Roman Catholic Church has contrived a heresy called transubstantiation. That the bread instantly and magically changes into the literal flesh of our Lord. Tragically, this means that Jesus is crucified every time the Mass is observed. He's sacrificed again and again. 
And if the sacrifice is repeated over and over, implied is that it's insufficient. God forbid. This is why three times in the book of Hebrews, the writer says that Jesus was sacrificed once for all for the sins of the world. According to Catholic dogma, when the priest repeats the words of Jesus, quotes them in Latin, hoc est, corpus meum, or this is my body, at that very moment, the magic occurs. But that obviously isn't what Jesus meant. How could it be? The bread couldn't be his body if his body was standing there holding the bread in its hands. Over the years, the detractors of transubstantiation, they took the priest's incantation, hoc est corpus, and contracted it and turned it into a derogatory phrase, hocus pocus, a magical formula. Anything fanciful or not grounded in reality is just a lot of hocus pocus. It's clear what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. Listen to him. Do this in remembrance of me. The composition of the bread doesn't get altered either actually or spiritually. It's a memory device. We eat the bread in remembrance. It conjures up our memories both of that Passover night so long ago and even those times in our lives when we've received from Jesus, maybe the day we were saved. Communion is like a spiritual souvenir. On my many trips to Israel, I've brought back some remembrances. One year, I collected rocks from each of the sites we visited. Didn't count on my suitcase being so heavy when I came home, but it was loaded down with rocks. Today, it's not that those souvenirs have any innate value. In a sense, the rocks I brought back from Israel are no different than the rocks in my yard. But their value is in the memories that they hold. And this is what makes the Lord's Supper so special. Not that the bread and the wine turn into anything other than bread and wine. If the Corinthians had only wanted to eat bread and drink wine, they could have done it at home. But in coming to the Lord's table, the bread and the cup took on a different meaning. They conjured up sacred memories. And then verse 25 In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I make note, it's the bread and cup, not bread and wine. That's how Paul refers to it, the bread and the cup. Even though I'm sure that Jesus and his disciples drank wine the night of the Passover, traditionally the Passover Seder involved wine, but in the Gospels and here it says cup, not wine. It's as if God knew that there would be occasions when it would be best for us to drink juice, not wine. Or that there would be believers who couldn't afford wine, only juice. In specifying cup over wine, Jesus gave his followers some useful latitude. The Lord's Supper is to unify us, not further divide us over secondary issues. Once there was a pastor's son, he wanted to know why his daddy was late coming home from church. Well, his mom told him, he said, son, dad stopped by the hospital. He's giving blood today. Well, this is a pastor's son, you know. He had heard it all. At first, the little boy, his eyes got big as saucers. He was a little concerned with the thought of his dad losing his blood. 
Then came a sigh of relief. He said, oh, but we know that's just grape juice, don't we, Mom? When it comes to communion, whether it's wine or it's juice or it's Kool-Aid for that matter, what's important are the memories it stirs up. His blood was spilt for us. And Jesus was careful to note the blood that he shed sealed a new covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's the terms of a relationship. And this is what his blood bought. A new relationship between God and you. One no longer based on your own performance, but upon the work of Christ on the cross and your faith in its sufficiency. Over the centuries, various views have sought to explain the significance of communion, but to me the deepest meaning is revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We studied it a couple of weeks ago. You remember Paul was explaining worship in the pagan temple. Though the idol is nothing, though the meat sacrificed to it is just meat, when you come to the altar of the idol to participate in an idolatrous practice, you are inviting the demons behind that idolatry to come out and play. You're associating yourselves with the demons behind the altar. And in a very similar way, when we come to the Lord's table, there is a spirit, but He is the Holy Spirit on the spiritual side of the table, who's waiting to greet us and work in us. Communion is a unique opportunity for us to commune with Jesus and to receive from His Spirit what we need. There is a 1993 painting by artist Danny Day. It's entitled, Daddy's Girl. A widow and an orphan, they visit the Vietnam Memorial on the mall in Washington, D.C., They're pointing at the name engraved in the polished granite. And there's a reflection in the stone. But it's not the reflection of the little girl and her mom. It's of the husband and the father who is reaching out from behind the stone to his little girl and to his wife. And this is how we should think of communion. As we reach to touch the bread and the cup in the spiritual realm, our Savior is reaching back to us. Let Him touch you as only He can. Let Him bring healing and forgiveness to your life when you come to the Lord's table. Notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Notice Jesus doesn't tell us how often, just as often. He leaves it up to each person and each group to be led by the Holy Spirit in determining its frequency. But Jesus does say, Say, as often as you eat, not as seldom as you eat. Implied is that communion is a practice that we should welcome. We should look forward to and greet with eager anticipation. He tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. I like the old quote I once heard. The world drinks to forget, but the Christian drinks to remember. Communion is to be just that, a perpetual remembrance. Until the trumpet sounds, we should remember and proclaim to the world the liberating truth of the cross and do so as we come to the Lord's table. Well, that's the significance of communion. But in verse 27, Paul explains the seriousness of communion. For he writes, Therefore, 
Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And this was a verse that struck horror in my heart as a child growing up in church. It made me dread communion. Our church and its pastor, their interpretation of verse 27 totally robbed me of my enjoyment of communion. We were taught that unless you were worthy, you shouldn't take the bread in the cup. You see, worthy is an adjective describing a noun. That meant that I needed to be worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's impossible. Hey, none of us are worthy of the body and blood of Jesus. If we could be worthy, Jesus would have never had to die for us. Read carefully the old King James Version, and it says, worthily. It's an adverb describing how a person eats or drinks, not an adjective describing the eater. The New King James Version hits the nail on the head. Whoever eats in an unworthy manner. In my childhood church, unless you were a flawless Christian or put yourself through a rigorous self-examination and confessed all your sins on the spot, you would never want to participate in communion. You wouldn't be worthy. And here's why you wouldn't want to participate. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Again, I used to read that as a scare tactic. Man, if I took communion without first searching my heart and cleaning out my life, I might get sick. I might even die. As a little child, I would envision myself, you know, I knew what I'd done that week, taking the cup and dropping over dead. I personally never wanted to take the chance. Once more, here was the problem. Somebody skipped grammar class. We mistook an adverb for an adjective. It's not that I have to be worthy to take communion. I just need to take it in a worthy manner. You see, applied to the Christians, this meant that if they had just beaten out their brother for the last sandwich, or if they'd cut to the head of the dessert line, or if they'd been out gorging themselves with barbecue, or if they'd been sipping Chardonnay for the last couple of hours until they were a little tipsy, if that's how they had behaved at the communal meal, then they had no business coming to the communion table. On our best day, no one is worthy of the body and blood of Jesus. But we can come humbly and grateful. We can be joyful and expectant. Let's come in a worthy manner. I love Lee Eckloff's description of how we should take communion. He writes, Maybe some morning, instead of solemnly passing these trays, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sisters found and dead brothers alive. Hey, maybe we should. Hebrew scholar John Duncan taught Oriental languages at New College in Edinburgh, Scotland. 
Once during a communion service, he was feeling so miserable, so personally unfit and unworthy. He let the bread and the cup pass by that morning. He refused to take communion. That's when he noticed a young lady who did the same. Her hands, though, were trembling. She refused to take from the trays, and instead she broke down in tears. Her sins had caught up to her. The sight of this tortured young girl seemed to shock Duncan back into his right mind. Half the church heard Duncan whisper to her, Take it, lassie. Take it. It's meant for sinners. And with that, the Hebrew scholar and the wayward girl became one, equal in Christ at the Lord's table. And I love that approach to communion. Take it, lad. Take it, lassie. It's meant for sinners. This is what the church at Corinth had forgotten. Communion is about celebrating the Savior and reminding ourselves of our common denominator. It's not about acting selfishly and feeding our factions. And then notice again the last line in verse 29. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or are dead. The Greek word translated sleep in verse 29 is the word from which we get our English word cemetery. The cemetery, the word cemetery, literally means the sleeping place. And this is a serious warning. It could mean that if these Corinthians continue to abuse the Lord's body, that is His church, by their selfish and sinful displays at the communal meal, then God is going to have to get their attention. He might just have to put some of them on their back so they can look up. Or if these rowdy believers refuse to get it together on earth, he might just arrange an early exit to heaven. That is a possible interpretation. But there's another. Notice the phrase, not discerning the Lord's body. Remember Isaiah 53 verse 5, it tells us, By His stripes we are healed. It was the sacrifice of Christ's body that paid for our healing. Not just our forgiveness, but our healing. The idea here might be that if we run roughshod over the meaning of communion and don't realize His broken body and shed blood was also meant for our healing, then we might miss out on the opportunity for wellness. And remain sick, even die. That's why there were church members in Corinth who were weak and sick. There was healing in Christ, but the Corinthians had failed to appropriate it because of their bad attitude toward the Lord's body and toward communion. Verse 31 For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Best to repent, to judge yourself rather than allow the Lord to judge you. Alan Redpath told the story of two boys who were left at home while his parents went with him to a special, their parents went with him to a special meeting at church. Well, when he and his host returned home, they found a note from the boys. It read, Dear Mom and Dad, we broke your vase. We are very sorry. We have put ourselves to bed without any supper. Signed, Jimmy and Johnny. Redpath asked the question, Well, what did this dad do? Drag his boys out of bed and give them a spanking? Of course not. In light of this verse, Redpath concludes, they had judged themselves and judgment was disarmed. And this is, what we, this is what we do when we repent of our bad attitudes and of our misbehavior. There's no need then for God to discipline us because we've been proactive 
and we have repented ourselves. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. If you know Christ, then I know one thing about you. You're here on this earth to be a witness. And if you're not one, if you're causing more harm than good, then like any good father, God will seek to correct you and to save you from condemnation. The chapter closes. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Hey, put the other guy first. Even if it means you have to wait in line a bit. And if you're so famished that you have to eat right now, well, he tells you what to do. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. And if your wife isn't cooking, stop by the Waffle House before you come to church. Lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. There were other issues that needed to be addressed, but Paul has dealt with the most pressing the need to love each other, and to treat the Lord's Supper with respect. Recently, I ran across a list of the world's most expensive foods. The world's most expensive foods. Did you know there is a $100 hot dog? You can pay $100 for this hot dog at Dougie Dog in Vancouver. It's infused with 100-year-old wine, Topped with lobster and cooked in truffle oil for $100. Or there's the $350 steak at Old Homestead Restaurant in New York City. Or the $750 cupcake topped with edible gold flakes and vanilla caviar at Sweet Surrender in Las Vegas. And of course, there is the $1,000 pizza served at Nino Bellissima's in New York City. Try breaking that on your Super Bowl party tonight. It's topped with lobster and caviar. But there isn't a dish more valuable or more costly than what's being served today here at Calvary Chapel at the Lord's table. The body of Jesus was broken. His blood was spilled. And before either happened, he took a piece of bread and he tore it. And he took a cup and he poured its contents into his mouth. And amazingly, he was thankful for both. And then he ordered us to remember. He commanded us to really remember. Today, he's no longer on the cross. He's on the throne. And he's coming back. In the meantime, we're to remember why we love Him, why we've pledged to follow Him, and why we're committed to doing it together.